This is a Federal News Network podcast. The General Services Administration is still in the process of consolidating its schedules program into a single procurement vehicle. And although it's undoubtedly one of the biggest changes in the program's history, there's a lot else going on with the schedules that vendors need to be paying attention to as well. To talk more about it, we're joined by Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. All right, Larry, and as you, as you point out in the newsletter, there's a lot going on with schedules right now beyond consolidation. Um, let's, let's go through the three things that you mentioned. One is the schedules roadmap that they have now published. Um, talk us through what that is and why you think it's helpful. Jared, I think that the roadmap in and of itself is important. But I also think it's indicative of the larger efforts that GSA is making to try to make it easier for first-time companies to get on the schedule. The roadmap is basically what it says it is. It's uh, like a non-digital GPS, if we could go back and use reverse technology. Uh, It lets companies know what's going to be required of them so they have an idea of what they need to do when they're putting an offer together for GSA. And then it tells them what's going to happen in basic steps uh, once they submit their offer, you know, how they're going to negotiate the fact that GSA will negotiate. Uh, I think that the roadmap is a useful uh, piece of information for companies to have. It goes some way towards demystifying the schedules process. And that's really been a priority for GSA's current leadership. And how does that fold in with the consolidation itself? Does it do a reasonable job of letting folks know how how the consolidation has changed the process to the extent it has? Maybe it hasn't changed the entrance process all that much. Um, Consolidations change the entrance process in that the company responds to one unified solicitation. I think the roadmap comes in handy because even though you might have a company that's a first-time applicant for the schedules, Jared, Uh, People, the actual people probably have worked or may have worked on a schedule contract before or may have heard about a schedule contract number, you know, like the IT70 schedule. And of course, that's all been done away with uh, via consolidation. The roadmap kind of makes that clear, doesn't come right out and say, hey, we did away with everything. But what it does say is this is what you have to go do and this is where you have to go uh, in order to get started. Uh, on your journey. And the other thing you mentioned that they're doing is expanding the startup springboard option. What is that and why is it helpful? Jared, startup springboard is a program that allows companies with fewer than two years. And in some cases they had required three years of experience, depending on the contract you're applying for. And even though they have a lot of experience because their companies have been in business for say 18 months, they couldn't apply for a scheduled contract. Well, now they can. Startup Springboard was started on the IT schedule several years ago as a way to give those newer companies a way to enter the schedules program, a lower barrier to market entry, if you will. And the idea was that GSA should be able to take these largely small businesses, uh, particularly if they're offering innovative products and solutions, uh, have them obtain a schedule contract so that federal agencies would be able to more easily access those companies and the companies themselves would have an easier access to government business. And in your experience, what does GSA actually want to see from a company or a company's leadership to decide whether they're the right fit for, for the springboard? 
I think there are a couple of basic things, Jared, and they're not all that different from a company that's been in business for longer than a couple of years. I think they want to see what type of experience or expertise does this company have? Does it have something uh, significant that's new? Uh, are there people associated with the company that have done uh, government contract business before? Uh, that type of thing. I, they definitely also want to see evidence of financial stability. Everybody gets a financial review, Jared, before you get a scheduled contract. Uh, no different here with Startup Springboard. You, with, you want to make sure that if you're awarding a contract to a company that you know they're not going to just close up shop six months later and not be able to serve a government customer. Uh, so it's those types of things. Stability, uh, any type of experience as broadly defined, previous experience with other ventures, that type of thing. Uh, that's what GSA is really looking to see. And then the third sort of reform you talk about here is is uh, the expansion of the, uh, the the ability to use transaction the the transactional data reporting method to get on the schedules in the first place. How does that work? And you mentioned you were skeptical of that early on. Why, uh, Jared? I was a big skeptic of transitional data reporting or TDR, as you mentioned uh, originally, and that was because I'm always concerned about the type of data a company provides to the government and whether or not it's being deemed accurate, current, and complete, which is a requirement through the traditional schedules process. But TDR has proven itself to be a very flexible way through which companies can either obtain or renew their GSA schedule contract without having to supply reams of commercial sales transaction information. Transactional data reporting is kind of another lane on the schedules highway. And that lane allows companies to uh, propose for a schedule contract without having to collect information on all their commercial sales practices. Uh, it uh, allows the contracting officer at GSA to conduct market research, use some of the price comparison tools that GSA now makes use of, and then maybe ask for a small amount of information if they need it in order to validate the reasonableness of the prices being offered by companies that use the TDR route. Uh, one of the neat things is with consolidation, GSA is gradually expanding the scope of TDR so that more contracts and more contractors will be eligible for that program. It still retains some part of the schedules price reductions clause, Jared, so I wanna make that clear. Any data that a contractor provides still has to be accurate and current, but there's no trigger for most favorite customer pricing, a real schedule compliance issue that has been uh, bedeviling contractors for at least as long as I've been with the program. Does that market research process put more of the burden on GSA and, and lengthen a decision process, or is it roughly, roughly the same on the agency side? You know, I think, Jared, when GSA first launched TDR, uh, it probably was a slightly longer process because contracting officers who had been used to awarding contracts the traditional way suddenly had this new option. Over time, we've seen the requests for contractor-provided sales information be reduced. Uh, I don't think they're eliminated. I would never go that far. Uh, but at the same time, GSA itself has 
created new price comparison uh, programs. Now, industry can talk about just how accurate they think those programs are, but the fact is these are new tools that GSA has at its disposal. And additionally, contracting officers now have a few years of experience awarding TDR contracts, uh, and they know that uh, they're not going, as long as they do all the things that they're supposed to do and exercise their due diligence, that they're not going to get called on the carpet for making a bad decision. All right. Lots of interesting stuff going on in the schedules program. Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks for taking us through it. Jared, thank you very much for your time, and I wish your listeners happy selling. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.